right, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Uh, Josh and Ken here, as usual, and uh, pretty excited about this guest. What do you think, Ken? Are you excited, or are we both excited? I, I mean, I don't know. Should we be excited? But we're, I think so, yeah. We're, we're happy to welcome uh, Congressman Dan Newhouse. Uh, thank you so much for being here and taking some of your time to chat with us today. I appreciate that. Guys, you should ask me if I'm excited to be here. Well, yeah, absolutely. I know you've been wanting to get on here for a while, and you know we've we've had other guests, and we had to bump you a couple oh, times. No, but no. and we thought we'd ease you in with you know less difficult questions off the bat. Oh, is that right? Okay. No, it's a pleasure to be with you guys, and you know I've been to at least one of your meetings. It was awesome. You had a big crowd, and uh, what you got going is great. Yeah, and um, you know, in person, so we like to highlight when that's happening too, because uh, sometimes uh, we're we're doing this over technology. But uh, really appreciate you coming to to do this in person. Sure, absolutely glad it worked out live in live in Benton City. So um, yeah, let, let's kick it off with some. It's been it seems like it's been a big week for uh, for Congress, and uh, but I, I want to go back at least a few weeks and ask you just in general about the fact that you know we had sort of some monumental steps taken to remove the prior speaker and replaced with a new one. Um, what can you tell us about Speaker Johnson, his priorities, how his first few weeks have gone, and um, what you expect from him? Okay, uh, it's a great place to start because uh, it has been taking up a lot of the time and attention and that the oxygen in the room, if you will, in Washington, D.C. the last month or so. Speaker Johnson, I think he's been our speaker now maybe for about 36 or 7 days. So he's just getting started. But um, I tell people, if if you met Mike Johnson, you would like him. He's, he's a great guy, uh, personally. He's a very devout Christian. Uh, he's conservative through and through. He's the kind of... Um, a Republican that's pragmatic, though, as well. He, he's not strident. It's not his way or the highway. He's very amenable to working with people, uh, which is a great attribute to be the Speaker of the House because he's the leader of the entire House. Uh, certainly, he's the Republican conference leader, absolutely, but he is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And so he takes that position very, very seriously. Uh, you know, some of the things I like about Mike, or Speaker Johnson, I guess I should say, but um, Mike Johnson, um, he's an attorney. He's a young guy. Uh, he's got a young family. Um, but you would think he's almost, oh gosh, almost a teacher. I mean, he's, he explains his position so well that you can, when you walk out of the room, you, you understand completely what it is he's trying to accomplish and how he's trying to accomplish it. <clears throat> and he's very open to input from other people. He wants people to tell him what, what we think, which is, you know, uh, what I've seen in my short time in Washington, D.C., that is a rare thing. Usually, usually things come from, from the mountaintop, you know, from on high. You know, in the, in, when the Democrats were in control, for instance, <clears throat> some, some of you, I think most all of you have heard of Nancy Pelosi. Heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was, you know, in a lot of ways, a very powerful speaker. But the one thing that just I thought was so so difficult under her administration, besides all the policy things that I had very little agreement with, but everything came out of her office. Right. Every piece of legislation literally was written in her office 
was brought out and she expected all of her democratic cohorts to vote for it. Yeah. Uh, didn't have hardly any input into what it was uh, going to say or what it was going to do. Mr. Johnson is not like that at all. He, he wants us to, in fact, we had three conference meetings just this, this, this week that I, you know, this is, they say this is a Saturday. Yeah. I just got home last night. We had three conference meetings. Two of those were policy meetings where we spent, uh, uh, more than an hour each time talking about the things that we that are on our plate right now. I know that you had an editorial this week uh, in the Washington Examiner, so um, where you stated unequivocally that a permanent ceasefire in the conflict that's happening between Israel and Hamas um, is out of the question. And as you noted, there was at least nominally a ceasefire prior to October 7th. So what are your thoughts on how the Biden administration is, is handling this? Because I, if you go back to October 7th, I think it was two days until we heard a statement from them, which seems surprising. But then I think President Biden delivered a pretty strong statement that was very well received, at least um, from the from the pro-Israel side, I guess you could call it. Um, and then, you know, we've seen a little bit of waffling back and forth. I I think even just this week, he sent out a tweet saying something like, we can't can't have an endless war. That's what Hamas wants. And then he had his uh, his staff kind of walk that back a little bit and say, "Well, we we're we we're talking about Hamas. We weren't talking about what Israel's doing." So, what's your confidence level that President Biden will continue to support Israel in that manner? Well, I think you know the president has made it clear that he does support Israel and wants to see it be successful. <clears throat> the thing that's interesting. And uh, we've never seen this before, at least to this degree. The amount of support that this terrorist organization, Hamas, is receiving from I don't know, yeah, what fringe do left, yeah, the progressive left, is huge. Right, and he's getting a lot of pressure, even from members of of, of Congress, right, uh, to don't be so strident in your support of Israel. Um, it, it, we're, we see on a daily basis demonstrations around the Capitol, right? Um, expressing the the opinion that the you know, that Israel should stop the murderous activities and all of, you know different things that they're they're describing uh, Israel's response to the Hamas attacks. I was, I think I mentioned this in the article, and thanks for mentioning that. Uh, there's there's a film that has been produced that shows explicit footage of what happened on October 7th. Right. Uh, and uh, I would... Have you seen that or...? I have. I only have to see it once. Right. Very graphic, very uh, upsetting and troubling to see what happened. The, the, it, it's not filtered at all. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not a movie. It's just clips from cell phones, from security cameras, from all different sources that are put together to, to show, to give people who see it an eyewitness account of what happened that day. <clears throat> and it's clear, it, Hamas has said itself that it wants to destroy Israel. And so any kind of a ceasefire, an extended ceasefire, just allows them to regroup, to retool, to, to, to strengthen their position so that they can uh, continue on that mission of destroying Israel. And that's what, that's what we have to be aware of, absolutely aware of. Support for Israel right now seems pretty strong on 
relative. I, mean, I think both sides of the aisle, largely. Um, I, would, I would say that's a true statement, yes. But there's been a growing, um, <clears throat> at least in terms of how loud they are, maybe online and op-eds, things like that, a growing um, part of the, we'll say, Republican side of the aisle that seems to be turning more towards an isolation, an isolationist approach. We'll skip that because I can't say the word. Um, uh, <laughs> turning away from you know America's leadership role in the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my my question for you, and and I should say that's particularly been around the conflict in Ukraine. I'd say, um, but some of those same arguments could see themselves applied to Israel down the line, perhaps if support begins to wane. Um, so, from your perspective, as you walk the halls of Congress, are these just a loud but small minority of a party, um, or when you talk to colleagues, are you beginning to to see a sense that they are perhaps entertaining the idea of America shirking away? Um, from its role in engaging with the world. So Ken, I think there's two things going on here. Um, there, there is a, I, I think it's a small um, contingent or group of people that are seeing just exactly what you are trying to describe and pronounce the isolationist attitude that we- And that's why he's the pro, <laughs> see? <laughs> the, I, that, that we, we, that, well, you and I weren't here, but that the world witnessed prior to World War II. And we saw how that worked out. History tells us that that is not an effective uh, strategy. <clears throat> and I think, uh, you know, I, I got to say, if, if give credit where credit is due. Some of that attitude is coming from the former president who has made statements similar to that. And so that, that could be influencing how some, some people are thinking. <clears throat> but I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a part of, of, what's going into some of the calculations people are making on, on how we should respond. But I think what maybe even is larger than that, and this, this is better, is people want, um, they want accountability for the aid that is provided for Ukraine. But let's talk about that specifically. That, that's, people want to make sure, because Ukraine does have a history of some corruption. There's, there's no question about sure. it. Uh, you know, that's been documented for a long, long time. And I think the American people have, through their um, uh, voice, have expressed an uneasiness of just sending a, or, or, or providing a blank check for aid to Ukraine. <clears throat> uh, and so I don't think we want to confuse support for Ukraine, for the large part, with the accountability and transparency of, of that support that we send. <clears throat> and I think that's fair. I, I do think that's fair. And one of the, you're talking about the, the administration. It seems very clear to us that, uh, at least on my side of the aisle, on the Republican side, that the current administration, the Biden administration, really has no clear goals in mind as far as it relates to Ukraine. When, and, and people are very nervous that this is going to turn into another Vietnam or another Afghanistan if, if we don't set some uh, some clarity as to what we're trying to accomplish or what what it is when are we going to recognize what uh, uh, the, the what victory looks like there has to be and, and if you don't know <laughs> in anything if you don't know what your ultimate goal is you're doomed to fail and so that's what we've been pushing the administration for we fortunately we've got some some very experienced people on some of the the, the most important committees that deal with this issue that war fighters themselves that that have been able to provide the administration from the Republican perspective on how we should move forward. 
unfortunately, the the Biden administration has not has not taken up all of those suggestions yet. But we're pushing hard on that. And I, this is some of the things we've been talking about this last week. In order to provide necessary funding for you, Ukraine and Israel and and Taiwan and all the different parts of the world that we're concerned with right now, we you know they have to listen to us. We control at least half of the legislative branch. In the Senate, they need 60 votes to do anything. They don't. Democrats don't have 60 votes, so they have to listen to some of the things that Republicans uh, want to accomplish. And so, I think we have a, a good, a good position to be able to affect positive change. And so, this week, uh, pretty quick transition here. Um, this week, you sent a letter along with several of your colleagues to the Biden administration, responding to a leaked mediation document regarding the Lower Snake River dams. What can you tell us about that memo and uh, what you found troubling about it? Oh gosh, this is um, talk, talk about in in like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a lot of questions for you. So absolutely, it's going to turn into Dan unfiltered. <laughs> well, this is a big issue, as you guys know, for our area, for Eastern yeah. Washington, for the Pacific Northwest. And unfortunately, over the last year, there has been this effort by, or the last, I should say, three years, really. But it's really grown in the last year, the effort by this, this administration through the White House to, um, to really push towards what I think is not a very well-kept secret on their part, breaching the, the lower four, uh, four Snake River dams. Uh, the, there's a mediation process been, that has been ongoing most of the last year. And this, this report that was a summary of what that mediation is, has has and trying to accomplish has a lot of things in it that are very concerning to me and to other members of the, of the congressional delegation from the Northwest. So we sent this letter asking for clarity, you know, and where are you going to get the money to do this? And what kind of commitments are you making? And what science are you using? Well, I, I loved specifically that you called out where they, they say the science is clear, followed by whatever we want, therefore, must happen. And you're like, what, what science are we referring yeah, to right, specifically? Right. So yeah, I, that I, capital I S that. science, is that the science? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's convenient science, whatever yeah. agrees with their perspective. Uh, so, so we're trying to hold them accountable, get some clarity so that people we represent understand what's, what's going on. And, and maybe the biggest thing about this process is that the people that are going to be most impacted by any action that's taken as it relates to these dams have not had a, a voice to pre be able to present their perspective and their how, how they um, think things should be moving on uh, into the future. So just so many things that are concerning about this effort. It's a, and these, you know, you got to give, give them some, some credit for, being persistent they are very good at incrementalism and we can never let our guard down if we want to protect the the hydroelectric system that we have in the in the pacific northwest and, and i'll also say this they're focused on the four lower snake dams don't think that they're going to stop oh, yeah stop oh, there well, it, it's progressive right there you got you got to keep going <laughs> that's right well and sorry for jumping around, but speaking of just a, a busy week, uh, this week the House Budget Committee held a hearing um, regarding the Fiscal Stability Act. And uh, <clears throat> it doesn't seem, at least from the outside perspective... We know you're not on the Budget Committee, by the way, but oh, we yeah. still want to ask yeah. you this. Okay. Um, not really necessarily to that, but, uh, or specifically to that, but 
just from the outsider's perspective, it doesn't seem there's a big appetite in Congress to address um, the quickly approaching uh, challenges with our um, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And I think they make up $2.7 trillion or so dollars annually of the, the budget. So uh, a large problem here. Um, it's about three quarters of what we spend every year. There you go. And, and <laughs> interest is, I mean, add that in yeah, too. So. Yeah. And so uh, I think it's 20, in about nine years, Social Security is set to be insolvent. Uh, 20, 28, 27, I think Medicare is on track for um, uh, shortfall. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, by law, they'll have what, 24% automatic reductions in Social yeah, Security. That's right. It, it, wait till you hear the screaming, the crying, and gnashing of teeth when that happens. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I guess uh, the, then the first question is, is from the outside perspective, it seems like Congress isn't willing to uh, tackle that yet because pretty soon they won't have a choice. Um, is, that, is that a fair assessment of, of current situations? Are you having daily, because if it was me, I'd hope to be having daily conversations with colleagues about here's how we can begin addressing. Uh, Senator Cassidy has proposed uh, a few creative solutions with investing, I think, $1.5 into basically the American economy to yeah. begin to begin growing that um, to help out. So. What does it look like uh, inside <laughs> the room, so to speak? Um, I'd like to say that this conversation is on the lips of every single elected member of Congress, but it's not. Uh, on my side of the aisle, the Republicans are absolutely looking at what we can do to avoid the catastrophes that you're describing. Um, Jody Arrington from Texas is chairman of the Budget Committee, and he is his. He, I think he. Uh, sleeps, eats, uh, lives, breathes, uh, cutting spending so that we can uh, can get our fiscal house in order. Um, the one thing that, that just drives me crazy, I think over the last couple of years that I've seen, people on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Dem Democrats, have not been truthful with the American people. One of the, one of the biggest clubs that... Are, that are, is used in political campaigns. If you, anybody says anything about cutting Social Security or cutting Medicare, yeah. oh, wow, you know, that, that is used against you so strongly. Yeah, and that's I, Brian Rydell, who's with the Manhattan Institute, I love reading what he talks about this because he just says this has to be a bipartisan solution yeah. Yeah. because if Republicans had complete control <clears throat> and they just shoved down what they thought would be the ideal fix for the looming debt crisis, we're over $33 trillion, and specifically talking entitlements, it it's going to crash and burn because they're not going to take the political risk because the Democrats will just hammer them, club them, like you said. So right. everyone has to agree that it's a problem and then come to the table. And I think, we're, I think we're getting close to that, Josh, closer to that, that most people can see that it's the mandatory spending that is the problem. You know, it's, it's the... It's the the majority of what we spend every year, we're trying to balance the books with less than a third of the, our spending, and you just can't do that. We have to address the these, and this is probably not the right word, but it's one everybody uses, these entitlement programs. Right. And we're not talking about eliminating them. We're not talking about throwing people into the street. We're talking about reforming them so we can preserve them, so we can make them functional and and. Uh, um, so that they can continue, so that when that year comes in 2028, so they, yeah. they exist. So people that have invested in them over their lifetimes will have something when they get to that retirement age. And it's just been one of those 
political clubs that have been used against but on both sides I, I hate to say that. yeah well uh, th- i mean the top two likely presidential candidates like, on both sides of the aisle have both declared they're not going to touch social security yeah. or medicare or any of these entitlements and has the administration been serious about these talks or is it just more i've, I've not seen anything okay. from the administration on wanting to take this issue on and it's 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 kind of the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about yeah and that, but that is starting to change. People are starting to recognize that we've got to do something. We have to do something. But you're right; it's got to be bipartisan. It's got to be something that that we can agree. There's a problem. There has we have to have a, 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 a an adult conversation on how we fix this. It can't be, just be used against you in the next political campaign. Um, and I think this is one of the areas that that um, unfortunately. People in government have actually been lying to the American people. Yeah. We have got to do something about it. Yeah, and especially, I think, um, because I think both sides of the aisle have a problem where, on the right, we just say, well, we just need to eliminate waste, fraud, abuse. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah that'll and, pay and for like it. That. That, then we'll pay for everything. We And, you know, stop sending money to Ukraine and that sort of thing. Um, and then on the left as well, direct quotes from the Biden administration is we'd, we just need to make sure that the wealthy and big businesses are paying their fair share. Yeah, right. And that'll pay for everything. It's like yeah. the math literally does not work. It does not work. And it doesn't work with cuts or just raising taxes. Like, you, unfortunately, we're going to have to do both. And it's going to get draconian if we don't address it. That's right. And nobody will want to see what has to happen. at that. When you go out and talk to voters and say, here's the reality, here's the math, here's some of the proposals being tossed around Congress, is there that, do you see in them a response of, yeah, I'd be willing to perhaps go through some uncomfortable moments, or I'd be willing to push the retirement age out of a few years in order to, to keep it solvent. I mean, do, when you have those conversations, are they coming back with, that's a reasonable approach? When, when you talk facts to people and are honest with them about the situation we're facing and, and some of the potential solutions that are being kicked around to, to address this, absolutely they're open to it. So, uh, so they're not rioting like they did in France when they raised the retirement age or whatever like, it was. Like, from what, 62 to 63? Something like or something that, yeah. Like you know, life expectancies are going up, which right. is a good thing. Um, uh, we can't, it's just not a sustainable path that we're on. In 42, life expectancy was 62, I think, or yeah. 60, 68 or so. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's over 70 now, right? Yeah. Well over, yeah. Well, if, if you'll indulge us with a little bit of conservative nerdery here, I, I know this is a bit out of left field. And the good news <laughs> is that we, we don't need to dive into the, the very fine details of what the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 is, which is colloquially called the Jones Act. Um, but So we, we don't have to dive into the details because I am happy to report that we, we're going to have someone on from the Cato Institute in oh, cool. the coming weeks to, to dive into that uh, with us. But I, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least bring it up to you because um, there's there's been some attention recently. It, it's actually been something that Ken and I, I think, bonded over when we first met about how much we hated the Jones Act. But um, there has been some attention recently. Like George Will wrote an article in the Washington Post, uh, Kevin Williamson in the Dispatch, and then the Cato Institute has launched this project uh, specifically trying to reform the Jones Act. So um, without getting into the details of what it does other than, you know, it, it essentially maritime protectionism. I don't know how we'd summarize it in, in, in one one or two sentences, but um, is there any response? Maybe the, the the broader question here could be if it if it's not specific to the Jones Act, like 
when George Will writes something in the Washington Post, is is that getting any buzz in oh, DC? Yeah. Like, do you say like, hey, look what Kevin Williamson wrote in the Dispatch, or like, what what do you think about what George Will just drew attention to? Can you believe what they just said on the CBCI podcast right, last exactly. week? Exactly. <laughs> do you hear you hear that nonsense Ken was spewing, or the, the, the wise words from Josh? We do a <laughs> do a bill right now. Um, yeah. So I I'd love to know number one like any attention at all in the Jones Act yeah, yeah, yeah. about reforming it or, um, but then a broader question is like, yeah, when, when you hear about these conservative think tanks or, or writers and, and. So, so the broader question first, you know, it's all part of the conversation. You know, when we talk about the conversation in, in the country, certainly George Will is a, is a voice that people listen to. Um, but he's not the only voice out there. It's just a part of it. And I think uh, e- even, even your podcast here can have a, a definite impact on what's what's uh, right. what's being talked about. Uh, you know, Watch out. When, when I first came into Congress, the Jones Act uh, was being talked about. Um, and it has been over uh, the last couple of years, a couple of times, usually. Especially, yeah, with like when the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, exactly, the exactly. fires in, in Maui, Hawaii. Yeah. Those kind of things. And so there have been some efforts to reform it, to um, uh, address those kinds of things. And, and there are... Uh, exceptions made to the Jones Act for those kind of right. catastrophes. So well, that, I mean, the fact that you need to do an exception <clears throat> proves the point, right? But anyway. Well, but but I think you need to go back and understand why it was put into place. And an interesting thing, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Jones? Yeah, from Yakima, yeah. From Yakima. Oh, oh, I, oh believe me, I, we have done our research. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, and I, I actually started to uh, follow his family um, ancestry, or not his ancestry, his descendants. And he has living descendants in... The Seattle area, and then I realized oh, really? I should just stop doing this and get back to work because what am I going to do? Call them up and like yell at them? But so anyway, but it was we're going to set up a boycott outside their house. Exactly, <laughs> that'll get start things. Start making changed. your signs. But it was put into place for for I think a good reason uh, to to make sure that in time of war, and this was the yeah, world merchant war, marines, yeah, that we that we had ship capacity in this country, and we're not dependent on other countries uh, for for basic important strategic. Uh, infrastructure, and I think we we saw. You can just look at the pandemic, the COVID nineteen thing. We were dependent on a lot of countries for different things. That oh shoot, all of a sudden we realized we don't have the capacity to, to make that stuff here. So so there's you know there was reason for for it to begin with. Now how do we address hundred plus years later? And the downstream consequences. I think you know that's that's the fundamental thing about being conservative is you have to look at absolutely you know that's economics and one lesson by henry hazlitt that i think i mention every other podcast is <laughs> you, ha- you have to look at all of the impacts of legislation and not just what right what exactly. you think or want to happen and things should should evolve and change and respond to you know what what's going on currently not yeah. just happened a, a decade ago or a century ago in this case and so so the the only conversations that I, I can tell you that I'm aware of are there are some like members of Congress from Hawaii for instance yeah. or uh, I've even talked with the um, they call them the, the representative that's not the word but from Puerto right, Rico. right yeah. um, um, it's perhaps making um, making exception for those Parts of the country that are not contiguous to the forty-eight right, right. Uh, states, or lower forty-eight, uh, that that kind of thing, making some some adjustments that way, totally opening it up, up. That always gets you know, a lot of debate about it, but never any um, 
I would say nothing that even comes close to being passed into legislation. All right. Well, we we look forward to your the bill that you'll run. The in written, you can name it the the Josh and Ken Act or something <laughs> like that. Open to names, whatever gets it passed, and we're we're fine with incremental change. Uh, but yes, yes. yes. things do need to change. Speaking of, I guess uh, avoiding um, reliance on foreign actors, you have been working on a uh, a bill to um, prevent those, and I think the the language is um, foreign ownership of agricultural land um, associated with the government of People's Republic of China. Yes, um, you know. Uh, Few questions definitely came up from that, but I guess my first question for you is: uh, Where do things stand on that? Is that getting any um, it is. any ground in, with members of Congress across both sides? You know, uh, I've been working on this particular issue for about three years now. <clears throat> I first um, pr- pr- proposed an amendment in the appropriations process to add it to a spending bill, and got unanimous support of Republicans and Democrats. And since that time, there have been numerous others uh, in Congress, both Senate and House, coming up with uh, their own versions, similar, uh, maybe some expanding it to include other countries and, and uh, other kinds of um, uh, uh, properties besides just agricultural assets. And so absolutely, it's gaining traction. It's getting a lot of traction. I'm sitting, I sit on the Select Committee on China, we're supposed to be, and we are, looking at all the, all the, all of our vulnerabilities and risks that China, the Communist Chinese Party particularly, uh, poses to the United States and the rest of the world, but particularly our country. Uh, and this is one of the one of the big things that we're looking at. So I'd say yes, it is gaining traction. It is um, got the attention of of a lot of people. Uh, it's something that. Again, going back to, I guess we learned a lot of lessons during the pandemic, but we cannot be too dependent on foreign sources for anything, particularly our food supply, which is, uh, I've said so many times, it's a, it's a matter of national security to be able to control our own food supply. And to have a, 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 something we should never have is a dependence on uh, not just a foreign source, because we have a lot of allies that we that we certainly uh, trade with, but uh, a foreign source who's not our ally, uh, who is in fact an enemy. That should never be the case. That really puts us in a vulnerable position. And so like, uh, we don't want to wake up in five or 10 or 20 years and think, oh, we should have done something about this when, when every food source has Chinese characters on the label. That's not a good position to be in. Is uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher a fun guy to work with? He on? is actually. Yeah. yeah, he's come. He's from Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, of course, WSU beat Wisconsin this this year, which is a good thing. But I remind him of that sometimes. One of the few bright spots in the season. All right. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. We're gonna trumpet it. Hey, I'm a Coug fan. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a smart young guy. Um, uh, doing a good job on the committee, and like I said, it's a. Uh, there are so many things that uh, we as a country need to be concerned with. As it relates to the Communist Chinese Party, Communist China, they are into everything. Uh, you, you name it, they are in it. And they are working diligently on a long-term plan to be a dominant force in, in the world. Yeah, I was listening to some podcast where they talked about having a 100-year plan. And it's like, 
and that doesn't work in the United States because we have just elections all constantly yeah, yeah, and right. new changes in administrations yeah. and such. So and as today's when, going, I settled. I settled for feeling like there's any plan. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're very reactive in this country. You know, elections every two years, president every four years. You can't look. Doesn't lend itself to looking out over long term. Yeah, you know, they have fifty hundred year plans in in China, which is which is I guess good for them, but something we need to be very aware of. Just to turn back to the, um, so uh, earlier this year you signed a letter to the agricultural secretary saying that um, uh, foreign ownership of agricultural land threatens the agricultural st- uh, supply chain. So it, now you're, you've been specifically working on those associated with China, but is the goal down the line, do you think, to uh, prevent all foreign ownership? No, I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, some people want to. Um, but certainly, I, I think we should focus primarily on those countries like China, and, and I'm open to focusing on Russia and North Korea and Iran, any country that has demonstrated to us that they are, they do not have our best interests in mind. I think that's where we should put our energy. Oh, do I get a nerd out yeah. on a, it's, it's my time to... <laughs> hey, I want you to drop your federalist. Yeah, there's been, there's been eight or nine times where we could just transition into Congress is broken. Um, so... Federalist 48, uh, Madison, um, talked about how Congress would be um, unrelenting in its consistent strive for not just holding on to its power and influence, but um, obtaining more of it. Kind of, you know, just human nature is to get more, I'd say. Um, But, and this is by no means a a recent trend, but for a while now, we've seen kind of the opposite. Uh, And, you know, recently comes to mind uh, Biden's, um, President Biden's, excuse me, uh, moratorium exemption, the conversation on student loans wasn't about how can Congress, mm-hmm. even if you agreed with those things, which I didn't, but how can Congress uh, address those? It was, please, Mr. President, pen and phone, right? Right. Um, and in fairness, that's been a Republican and Democratic administration. Both sides. Uh, both sides. Um, so <laughs> I'll make that question short. Why? Why are, your, why are so many of your colleagues willing to not do their job? relinquish our constitutional authority yeah. to the executive branch or the courts even too yeah. uh, that's right yeah. uh, the judicial branch as well um that's a really good question but you're right it's something that's been going on for decades uh, I, I can think of but well, one thing uh, that we are you know, exercising or flexing our constitutional muscle that is kind of atrophied over a long period of time uh, is that of oversight you know, one of the things that we are constitutionally uh, empowered to do is keep oversight over the exec- executive branch, over the, how money is, you know, we, we pass spending bills, we direct the agencies to do, do good things with that money that, that we appropriate for them, and we're supposed to have reports back periodically from them in order to and make sure that the, they're doing what we intended. That sometimes does not happen. And so this Republican majority has been a very good thing, has been um, holding their feet to the fire in a much more active way. And I think that's, that's a positive trend. <clears throat> and uh, there's lots of examples of relinquishing constitutional power. Why do we do, why does that happen? Why does, why does Congress allow that? It's easier, I guess. Um, you know, those guys are there all the time. We're not. Um, there's so many things we're supposed to be focused on. We, you know, we give 
specific duty to or a job to an, a, a particular agency. And you know what happens a lot of times? We, we pass legislation, send it over, you know, get to the Senate. It gets signed into law by the president, and then it's forgotten. Go on to the next thing. And so you don't even think about it. It's, I guess it's a product of so many issues. But also, I hate to use this. You're going to probably broadcast this out to my, my colleagues. It's a, it's a factor of laziness as well uh, over the years that Congress just does not have, has not taken up the mantle of, of making sure that we fulfill our obligation and responsibility to hold the administration accountable, to make sure that they're performing in the way that they, we, we directed them. And maybe tangentially related to that is, again, like we said, you've had, you've had a busy week. Um, you did a little house cleaning yesterday and um, yeah. voted to expel a member of Congress, which is, is rare. Um, this is one of the few acts of a healthy Congress, yes, I'd say. I, I, absolutely. So, um, yeah, what, what can you tell us about uh, what led you to vote the way you did in there? Well, I supported the expulsion of George Santos, who was a freshman member from New York's third congressional district, I believe it was. Um, there were 114 Republicans that joined most of the Democrats to, to, uh, to and we got the two-thirds plus majority that was required. Um, Mr. Santos uh, demonstrated to me uh, that he did not deserve uh, to represent um, his constituents in the United States Congress. Um, and that's a very serious thing. Like you said, this does not happen very often. Three times during the Civil War for treason, and twice uh, since then, the last time being about 20 years ago. Yeah, I think James Traffitant, right? Yeah, that uh, was the last one. Which, yeah, he, he certainly deserved it too. <clears throat> but, um, but, and those two, and this was one of the arguments that the people made, the two in modern times that happened, one was in the 80s, and one was in the early 2000s. Those, both of those had been convicted right. of a crime, a felony. Uh, Mr. Santos has not been. Uh, his trial, I guess, uh, resumes in September of next year. But the Constitution is very clear that we can set our own standards and rules, and I can't quote it to you, but we can, we can set what we think is important and necessary for a member to serve in Congress. And when you, I guess the bottom line for me is why I voted the way I did. He literally stole money from his constituents. Yeah. I mean, it was clear cut. I mean, you could, you could have had a, a, the only thing that would have been better if you had a photograph of him picking your pocket. I mean, the, the bank records were there. Thousands of pages of, of uh, evidence was utilized by the ethics committee over eight months. Um, to me, there was no question that he, the actions by Mr. Santos went way beyond uh, what we should accept being serving in the United States Congress. Also, one less clown in Congress, I guess. Um, but <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that is a fundamental founding principle of this organization we started is that we need to have more serious leadership. And um, you know, this January, the Republican Party will begin their caucuses uh, to select delegates for the state convention. That'll happen in April. Um, they're intending to endorse candidates prior to filing, which is in May. Um, you know, the GOP lost a member of the Washington delegation this last election cycle, um, Jamie Herrera-Butler. We just hosted her um, recently. Uh, 
the red wave failed to materialize. We have zero statewide elected Republicans. We made no gains in the the House and Senate, even if with the struggles that we've experienced under a Democratic. Wow, really trying to end this podcast on a sad <laughs> note. <laughs> well, I, but I, 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 you know, it, hey, you know, we gotta lay it out like it is, but. Um, you know, you've you've drawn one opponent so far um, who I I think will go down the path of, of a lot of what we've discussed today of, of a lot of grandstanding and um, not actually. I I'll just say this: I asked him uh, what about the Merchant Marine Act, and he had no idea what it was. Um, so mm. not surprising. That was a couple years ago. But you know, what message do you have to potential delegates about the? seriousness of the challenges we face and, and why you're best suited to address them and why we need serious leadership. You know, this is a hard one for me, Josh, and can be, I don't like to talk about myself that much. Um, or I, I, yeah, it doesn't even need to be about you, but just the seriousness and this sort of been the theme of the uh, podcast we've had so far is that the serious issues that we face and how we need We to, could say uh, you're talking about them. Congressman Ben Newhouse. <laughs> and uh, So... Gosh, I could say a lot of different things, but we are, you know, uh, truly at a time in our history that is uh, so many different things are are challenging us as a as a nation and and, and the world. Uh, when we have the existential threats that we we have, you could put into that category. We just talked about China and the the goals that they have of dominating uh, in. Uh, taking over uh, economically, militarily, um, the threats that they pose to us as a, as a nation, um, our debt, it's, I think it's 33.6, maybe $7 trillion right now. And rising. And rising so fast, you, it makes your head spin. And, and the, the things that we need to do to get that under control, our deficit spending is, is dire. Um, the, the, um, hotspots or the challenges around the world, whether it's Israel, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's in Africa now, there's things happening there. Um, there are so many things that we need to have serious people in Washington, D.C. That, that want to accomplish things. And I should, let's not even stop there. Look at what's going on in our own backyards, the challenges to, to the, the Lower Snake River dams, for instance. Right. The, the things that, that are we're facing here in the state of Washington, we need to have uh, level-headed people in those rooms, in those conversations, to make sure that uh, people stand up for what's important to the to the people that live here. You know, I've I've been I've born and raised in Central Washington. My family's been here for several generations. I'm going to die here. Our business is here. My family's here. Um, the, the short time I've been in Congress, I think I've proven that I'm one of those people that wants to be serious about getting things done. I, I sit in a couple different places that give me the, the platform to elevate the issues here that are important, not just to central Washington, but to the entire state of Washington, the Pacific Northwest. I'm chairman of the Congressional Western Caucus. I sit on the Appropriations Committee. I, I know how things work there. Um, so I, I just think that it, with the things facing us today as a, as a district, as a state, as a country, uh, we need to have serious people there that, that want to take on those challenges and solve them so that we have a future in this country. 
Um, I think you're absolutely right. And, and if nothing else, yeah, we need serious. And, and like I always say, look, if I'm going to go out and find a plumber, I'm not going to Google search who has the least experience. <laughs> I'm going to initially turn to the person who's been doing the job well for a number of years and has shown that they've built the relationships. To, well, in this case, you know, do a good job of plumbing. But in your, in your case, you know, right, uh, you have the experience and you're on the committees. You're, you've been, I've lived here for, my family's been here for a long time. Uh, can't speak enough for the work you've done and, and all you've done for our region. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't have... <laughs> Well, I'm certainly just not going to go for someone who just goes on social media and yells about plumbing. Um, anyway. I guess we're ending my campaign for Congress today. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you so much for your time um, and being here. We appreciate all the work that you're doing as, as a serious leader um, and uh, would love to have you back, but um, understand that you're doing a lot of important work over there and it's been a busy week for you. So the fact that you flew in from DC last night and come in, meet us here in Benton City to discuss it. We, we really appreciate your time and uh, wish you the best and uh, anything we can do to help you, we're there for you. I appreciate that. Ken and Josh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Again, thank you very much for what you're doing um, to help spread the conservative word in, in central Washington and beyond. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.